welcome to another episode of the Autism Podcast. Uh, today, we are honoured to have with us Alan Morrison, who is a uh, 53-year-old autistic adult uh, living in Lancashire, which is in, for those of you who don't know, is in the northwest of England, just below the Lake District, right? What part of Lancashire are you in, Ellen? Uh, central Lancashire. Um, yeah, west, west of Manchester, north of Liverpool, and just near Blackpool. Yeah. Lovely, lovely. Um, okay, so yeah, and we're going to be talking with you about lots of different things, uh, specifically, you know, or in particular, about education um, and, and some of the sort of important issues that need tackling in, in schooling and education based on your experiences because you used to be a teacher uh, but before we jump into it i uh, just also say hello to james as well hi james gordon how you doing james hi there i'm happy to be here yeah great 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 okay so uh yeah as i said alan thanks thanks so much for joining us it's really great to have you on perhaps let's first start with a little bit more about yourself if you don't mind um if you might wouldn't mind just giving us sort of an overview as to um, your background I and mean, a little bit maybe about your autism story you know in terms of your journey to self-identification or diagnosis. Okay so I was always aware that I was a different sort of learner than other kids. There was things that I could pick up easily in school and things that I struggled with but I did pass like every I was always at the top of the test scores. I was educated prior to the national curriculum in a rural village school and in in that environment they they wouldn't necessarily move you one year up at a time so I did a couple of years in the infants then I was straight in the juniors and then they put me straight in the top class so I, I was I was with older kids most of the time so I was aware that I was different and I was um, I played a lot of chess and I could beat everybody at chess uh, I played a lot of sport I was good at sport but I was very I was quite quiet and shy not quite non-verbal, but um, uh, quite reticent to speak. But the teachers were very encouraging of, a lot. Not all the teachers, but the ones I liked were very encouraging of me to uh, hear my voice and quite supportive of me and sort of helped me speak out. And the older guys that, that were my friends, I mean, there was quite a lot of love from, from my peer group and they were all very supportive and protective of me. Uh, in the background, my mum had a disability. So that might have been one of the reasons why people were so supportive of me. Now, I had a granddad who was a fruit and vegetable merchant. And one of my uncles, my uncle Jimmy, was uh, noticeably different uh, in the way he dressed, the way he spoke, and how he made money and everything that he did. And people would, would always comment on him. He was a really nice guy and I really liked him. He's still around. He invents things. He taught himself computer programming. So programming came out. So uh, it was a very interesting, very interesting character. I knew he was a different learner and I knew he was very clever and I kind of identified with him. My brother was a different sort of learner as well, but my brother lacked confidence. My brother would rarely speak out. Um, he would communicate with me and he would communicate with his friends, but put him in an educational setting and he would really go into his shell. So I don't remember feeling too much fear in my uh, quietness. But uh, Stephen would present as though school was a very uncomfortable environment. So he'd often have cold sores. He'd cry a lot. He had problems reading. I can remember really early uh, the teachers thought, my mum had a progressive illness 
And I remember my mum being desperately, desperately upset when the school wouldn't allow her to read with him. She just kept, they kind of thought that she might have been the problem. And they kind of thought that Stephen should learn to read with the teachers. And it was in the days where you could be beaten, you know, for making mistakes and things like that. By the teachers? Yeah. So yeah. the teachers would think he wasn't trying hard enough or this and those. So the school became a very hostile environment for him. And I think, like I was moved up a couple of years, I think he was kept down. That's my, that's how my memory is. And also, with me hanging around, with me hanging around with the older boys and being good at sports, it would be like people would come round to my house, come and play football, and they would want me. You know, people. I was very, very popular because I was good at sport and things like that. And, and he didn't have the benefit of that. Uh, he still had some good friends, but it was a different dynamic. I was, I was a much more dynamic person out of school. Uh, it, it, well, even in school. I mean, I was dynamic in the playground. I'd open up there. But in class, I'd tend to be quite reticent. I'd always be struggling with handwriting to keep up. And I found I found actually writing things down quite hard. But basically, I found myself at the top of the class in anything that I enjoyed. Uh, I went through school just like that. But I remember when it came to doing exams, there was a lot of doubt. I, in, in the third year of high school we did we did sort of preparation exams about because you could do O levels then or CSEs which were uh, not as challenging an exam it was for so when I did my exams in the third year there was quite a bit of surprise at how, at how good the scores were how old were you that'd be about 14 then and also when I did my mocks at 15 they decided just to be safe to dual enter me for everything so I did double exams I did twice the amount of exams as everybody else did. It was like there was some doubt about whether I was going to perform. So you would, you would do well in one exam. The teachers would, would question it and then make you repeat yeah. it. Yeah. Now, it depended. So I, I was able to connect really well with some teachers and not so well with others. So when I said dual entry for dual entry for almost all the exams, but some teachers gave me a lot of confidence. Uh, and I remember the English teacher pulling me out. And uh, he said, you know, uh, you're the brightest kid in this class. You're the most sensitive kid in this class. You've got to believe in yourself. He just gave me loads of praise. And he was one of that I was scared of. And I didn't realise he was so much on my side. You know, he gave me a lot of confidence. You know, confidence. In, 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 his, in his own aggressive way. <laughs> gave me some confidence. Mm. So then when we left school, I was terrified of uh, going into mainstream work. So... Uh, I went to college and I was lucky enough to have um, a plump for sociology. Some older lads had told me it was a great subject. And you did subjects, you did areas like deviance and crime and things like that. And I thought, yeah, I want to do that. And uh, they also said that the teacher was brilliant. And he was like a legendary name, this Michael Harrell Ambos, he was called. And uh, he wrote the textbooks that we used. So... Oh. The A-level textbook was his book. Can I, can I, sorry, can I just say, I have his books. I, I've now yeah. connected two and two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Harold Lambos sociology books. I studied those. Those, they're, they're, yeah. bl they're blue. I've got the blue Beats one. Perspectives, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. And it's so, it's, uh, it's so cool. He, I remember missing the bus and he'd stop and he had a mini, he'd stop and he'd give us a lift home and give us a lift into college. And ah. like, his attitude was just, it made it so. It made learning so relaxing. He, he just. He just wasn't really. His 
what he wanted you to do was to take an interest in the subject. And he wasn't bothered whether you, he just wanted you to carry it forward into your life. It wasn't really, it wasn't about passing an A-level. It was like, just come and learn this subject. And, you know, if you, if you get bored, don't come back next week. Or, you know, if you want to skip. He wasn't, he wasn't disciplinary at all. He was really open. And he would always turn things on its head. He, one of his phrases was, always look at the taking for granted assumptions. That's where the interest is, with the taking for granted assumptions. Uh, so that brings us back to what I'm sure we're going to take talk about later, which is that, you know, teachers are caring. So that's an assumption that teachers are caring. The teachers would all say, oh, yeah, we all, we're all really caring in this school. Yeah. But Mike would say, you know, is that an assumption? You know, how do they interact with individuals? Do they give some people a hard time? Or well, teachers would say, we're fair with everybody. And Mike would say, you know, is that true? And it's, you know, you, you, could, you could clearly see that people respond differently to different people. And Mike sort of made it all right to think like that and to notice things like that and to, you know, take that sort of thing on board. It was really empowering. Great it was. It was brilliant. Was he part of your sort of inspiration to try to enter teaching? Oh, he was part of the inspiration into feeling okay about feeling different and things like that. And uh, starting to feel like, you know, my personality's all right. Mike liked my personality, so that was very, very validating. So the coolest teacher who was known for, like, 15-mile radius around the town, that guy liked me, and he would pick me up at the bus stop and drop me drop me off if it was raining or something like that. He talked a lot about IQ was a big thing, and he was just trash IQ tests and trash all these conventional ideas about intelligence. So teaching, now I never thought about teaching until much later on. Teaching was a long way off. So I went from college and I started working for a local supermarket chain and I was a fruit and vegetable buyer. So that was kind of like the family business, trading fruit and vegetables. And I remember as soon as I started working, even though I liked the job and I liked the people I was working for, I just felt the demands were completely overwhelming. Just the 40-hour week, I'd be exhausted. I'd go home to sleep every night as soon as I got in. I remember, so pretty soon I learned that I was only going to get four weeks holiday a year. And I was like, I couldn't, I, I, I just thought, I don't know how I'm going to cope. I don't know how I'm going to cope with that. And really, I was looking to get away from it. Uh, but I, I had no idea where. Now, the thought of going to university was not something, was not an idea that my family would put in my head. And it's something that I think I was fearful of. So I was still a shy person. Going back to when I was at school, we had some, like, uh, some teachers who would make you read the textbook. And every week, it was somebody else's turn. Now, that was the most dreadful experience ever. I, I would absolutely yeah. terrified by that. I could feel it coming like three, four weeks away. And when I read, it was just like a humiliation of yourself. It was like uh, 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 just... And there was no support at all. It was, oh, I mean, if you think about it, and you're 14 or something and the nice-looking girls are in your class and then it's your turn to read and you just, it's like just like self-crucifixion. It was sort of horrendous. It was, oh, it was absolutely horrendous. So, yeah, I still had that sort of personality, but I was finding myself and people like mine were validating me. But my friends had gone to university and, so they were coming back and enjoying the experience. And what I noticed was that they had a lot more freedom. 
uh, and this was not as intense an experience as work. So they started encouraging me to think about going to uh, uni. So I redid sociology at night school, passed it with flying colours. It was easy, easy peasy. And uh, applied to go to Manchester and uh, set off into the big city. This was a big gateway. And yeah, my me, me mates who'd gone to uni started throwing books my way. Oh, you want to read this book? And I remember reading a book called Catch-22, which was really sort of turning the world on its head. So that was like backing up the experience with my Carol Ambers and sociology. It was just making me... It was change, It was, it was, it was sort of validating the different way I had of thinking. And I, I loved the book. I couldn't put it down. So it was, oh, I was on this great direction that was felt very liberating. And then, uh, yeah, so then we made from college. We were always music fans. We were always really into music. And when we were really young, like 11 and 12, we'd go to punk concerts. And he had a brother who was like 16 years older than him. He was promoting concerts, like cutting edge, all the music we wanted to listen to. So he needed people to go up to the Edinburgh Festival to do some work for him. He needed people to do odd jobs. So I started trying to work for him as much as I could. I started to find a role. I can work intensely doing something. Because I could always work intensely if it was something that I loved. If it was something that I loved, I could work forever on it. I'd never get exhausted. All that exhaustion wouldn't be there. I'd just have energy to burn. Just, yeah, get up the next day, do it again, do it again, do it again. Seven days a week, no problem. Don't need a day off. This is, this is my hobby as well as my work. And that brought us into contact with loads of comedians, and it was always low level. So uh, I was watching a video of Eddie Izzard today. So I remember Eddie, he came up, he played a venue that must have only held 50 maximum. There was about 24, you know, hardly anyone was, you know, I was going to watch Eddie Izzard every day, right at the start of his career. And his, his surreal comedy, off the cuff. I was in an environment that was much more, uh, much more, uh, I just felt much more at home, you know, around these people. Our, we have, we were all, our characters were honest, not devious, straightforward, could admit mistakes, could admit what we were struggling with. All And we had really, really massive enthusiasm for music and comedy. And he just valued all those things, all those things that were different. And a lot of teachers had tried to stamp on at school. He thought they were great. Really validating again. So by right. this time, I'm starting to get, by the time I'm approaching late 20s, 30s, I'm starting to be a confident person. Right. I'm starting to, starting to find my voice. And that's when I started thinking about going into teaching at that point. It's a really fascinating story how, you know, your earlier educational experiences and your upbringing, it sounds like it was all about sort of stamping out your individuality and, and yes. perhaps not, not, not sort of validating your diverse... Yeah, I think that's why I was always quiet. So I, I had self-belief because I was hanging around with older lads and I was as good at football as they are and I was as clever in the class as they were. But the things that were different about me, you know, I'd try and keep them quiet in case the teachers picked up on them or you know, I'd get pumpkins for my handwriting or for not keeping up. But the things that were different about me were a problem in school and in other environments they were, they were what people liked about me. Sounds like you struggled quite a lot with obviously their the teaching the teacher's approach and the whole sort of educational philosophy obviously was was a, was a key problem but also perhaps 
you know the the pressures that came with the the lens the lenses of the teacher when they when they te- when they were sort of assessing you or or had their eyes on you and and not so much perhaps when you you were in the playground you know that's brilliant. that's brilliant i wouldn't want to be top of the class i would want to be just below the not quite noticeable you know i wouldn't want yeah. to be the top. The okay. chess was different because chess was silent. You know, I could play chess in complete silence and I quite enjoyed beating everyone. That the school promoted chess and that's because some of the teachers played it. This is primary school. And if you were lucky enough to win the tournament, you got the honour of playing the teacher. You know, this. so I, I, not only did I win the tournament, I beat the teacher as well. Do you think, though, the, coming back to the point about, you know, struggling in, in maybe the 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 sort of teachers spotlights that they'd throw on you do you think do you think it's because you know you you know when when you were sort of under their gaze you 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 knew deep down that you you had to do it their way as opposed to do it do it your way you know and be be yourself um and and again going back to that point about sort of stamping out your individuality I i think i knew that i'd find my own way of doing things and it wasn't the right way so I was trying to keep mm. that quiet a bit, really. Well, it wasn't the way they wanted, more to the point. Yeah, yeah rather yeah. than the right way. Yeah, yeah. Doing it, the people who got the most praise, I knew I wasn't I wasn't doing it their way. <laughs> yeah, their way, right, right. But then when you found the spotlight and, and and some, you know, it sounds like when 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 you you entered the music and uh, comedy scenes and and there, you, it, there was, it was yeah, it was it would be my Carol Ambassy would like. What do you think, Alan? What do you and well that English teacher that pulled me to one side as well? What that, that guy who tried to give me confidence, he would say, Right, what do you think, Alan? Mm. After, after he'd given me that sort of aggressive boost of confidence, I kind of knew he had me back and I kind of knew he was doing it. He, he, he wanted he wanted to show the rest of the class that I was good, really. Yeah. Something really nice about what he did, although you know, if you crossed him, he would batter you. <laughs> oh, really? But, yeah, well, he would cane you, you know. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so he was very strict, but at the same, so he, he was, you know, I was scared of him, but he, I had that side. I want to give him his, his due for that, you know. He, 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 he wanted the other kids to recognize that I had talent and I had things worthwhile saying, so I want to give him his due for that. Mm. Uh, do, do you think, though, I mean, there's a, couple of, there's a couple of things to pick up on on everything you've said, but going back to your brother, if you don't mind, do you think that? much of the problem with your brother was was that approach you know that stamping out of of individuality that yeah. that strictness the beatings so as my, my so my mum had a progressive illness so i always had my mum in the background to comfort me and stuff like that and he had less of that so he was more emo- much more emotionally isolated and he wasn't as talented at sport to get that kudos it's it's very it's very validating being one of the best footballers, you know, people knocking on your door because they want you to play with them. He didn't have that so much, yeah. But you you helped him. He had one teacher, who that teacher who stopped me mum reading with him, and I think he had to do two years with her, and she crucified him. She wow. was on his back. She was, it was his fault. He wasn't trying hard enough. He wasn't concentrating hard enough. Uh, he would be slippered by, uh, you know, she would back it all up with things like that. She tried everything except care and kindness. Terrible, terrible. Really, yeah. really awful. Honestly, and if someone told me criminal. she died, if someone's honest, my mum, oh, my mum, when, when all that happened, I 
I remember my mum howling. She was so upset that she couldn't read with Stephen. She was howling. She knew it was bad. She knew that teacher was bad. Honestly, I've got very little compassion for that. She was a cruel woman. She was definitely a cruel woman. I think I skipped her, you know. You know what I said when we moved between the years? I think that I think that happened. I think I skipped her when my brother got two years of her. So I think that was a big difference that we had. Right. But she was a real nasty piece of work. Now, before we started the recording, you mentioned to me that uh, you, you helped your brother quite a lot through um, education and, and he actually had quite a big transformation in terms yeah. of educational success. Uh, would you mind yeah. talking so about yeah. that? He had a huge transformation. So, um, so my, Stephen, Stephen was uh, very concerned about what he was going to do after school. So my daddy was an aggressive man, thought there's no value in Stephen going to college because he's got no qualifications or anything like that. What's the point in him going to college? He's going to work on the fields because we're in the rural community, which was absolutely what Stephen didn't want. I mean, we all worked on the fields in the holidays to earn some money and he didn't enjoy that. That wasn't something that he found easy. So he wanted to go to college like his brother and he'd heard, started to hear this. We were feeding Michael Aramis was like a rock star in our circle. So Stephen was uh, hearing this about Michael Aramis and he wanted to go and study sociology at college. So uh, eventually I had to, yeah, I had to help convince my dad that he was going to be a good, that he should go. It was a battle, but Stephen eventually got to go to college and he enjoyed it. He enjoyed the experience because we, so from going from a small village to a, a, a to a town, to a quite a sizable town, so uh, they had multiple football teams so he could play. He could join in the sport and stuff like that. He really enjoyed He really enjoyed the social aspects of school. Ah, this is a key thing in Stephen's development. So Stephen was a, a good-looking lad. And when he got to about 15, 16, all the girls started taking a big interest in him. And uh, it was like the girls in the top classes and all that sort of stuff. And I just remember at home, constantly be girls around at our house and be like wow how's he doing this and he got so confident i remember him getting a pair of leather trousers to go to a disco <laughs> he was finding himself through his popularity with girls nice girls you know it's like now he had formed nice relationships with the girls in his school so that helped him that gave him confidence and when he went to college there was more of that and uh, he had a he had a regular girlfriend but he failed all his exams, failed all his O-levels, and they suggested he doesn't come back. And he wanted to come back. He did no way he wanted to go back onto the fields. He wanted to do his O-levels again. And eventually they lay him. So uh, at this point, I started realising how much he wanted it. And I'd learned these things from the sociology and Mike, what Mike was saying about Oh, just because he, he talked a lot about IQ and he sort of said, you know, if your writing's a certain style, people assume you're clever. If your writing's a different style, people assume you're stupid, neither of which can be true. So this, this is our dynamic, right? This is the sort of things he put in your head. So I remember, you know, sitting down with Stephen when he had essays to write and he, he, he did not know how to form a sentence. He did not understand what basic grammar was. He, he kind of thought 
he kind of didn't know what he was supposed to be doing. And I, I remember explaining to him, look, it's just think about, think about it's something you're going to say and just try and write it down and just keep your sentences short and simple or, you know, just, just don't think of the words that you suppose that you think you're supposed to be putting there. Put your words into the sentence. Stop the sentence when you want to stop the sentence. Move on to the next point when you want to move on to the next point. So he would write, uh, and I'd I, I just explain some basics like, whatever the question is in your first paragraph, explain how you understand what that question means and then answer it. Don't try and guess what, so you know, whatever the question is, he, he, would write, he would start by saying something like, my understanding of this question is, da, 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 and then he would go. So he kind of started like that every time. And that, and that was a big breakthrough. And he got, he just flew. He just got, he got five A's at all level in, in that one year. So he went from nothing to five A's, nothing at all to five A's. Amazing. Um, he, he was autistic too, right? Oh, right. Yeah. So yeah, that, that, that yeah. was the other thing. So part of him staying on at college, he got some support. Now, all I knew, I didn't know about autism, I didn't know what autism was then. Uh, I knew he'd had some support. So, but that, what that meant to me, though, was that he had someone who was sympathetic to him. It wasn't a special... That was my understanding of what he was... He had a kind person who understood that he wanted... Uh, that he was sincere and trying to achieve, trying his best. That's how I answered his support. That was it, and that he had a little bit more time. They'd identified that he needed a bit more time to understand what was going on and a bit more time to uh, respond. That was all. That was pretty much all he would tell me about. He wouldn't tell me anything else. He was a bit embarrassed about it, I think. But yeah, he, I mean, he, he just he just flew. And, and as soon as he got his confidence, then he would he would be joining in the discussions with me and Matt. So I'm two and a half years older than him. So as soon as he got confident, he'd join in the discussion with me and my friends, and he would start academically arguing with me and my friends, and he would really start to stand up for himself. And yeah, he would he, he he was finding himself definitely similar similar in a similar way to I was, but he was doing it quicker in a shorter space of time. So my me me finding myself academically sort of happened earlier, and, it, and with him it happened from like sixteen to eighteen, and it it just happened with the same with his degree. He was just getting first for everything he did in his degree, no problem at all, no problem. And then he got a master's right in Berkeley. Yeah, he got a master's in birth. So uh, he was flying, yeah. Full of confidence academically. He'd argue with anyone. Did he Did he get um, an autism diagnosis or was it a self-identification? Yeah, so, so that's that support that uh, he kept quiet about. That's what it was. It was a diagnosis of autism. Oh, I see. Things. Okay. Right. So that, that was that was a big step for him, yeah. Uh, but he didn't like labels. Mike, Mike was... One of Big's Mike's big things was uh, labeling theory, which we both took to. So I never get too hung up on the label. You know, Stephen would say, I, I'm neurodiverse. He wouldn't say I'm big, he's autistic. He would use that term, neurodiverse. Mm. Yeah, we didn't like the labels, but you could you could see why, because that could take you back again. So the teacher gets the label autism, and they treat you in a way which they think is about autistic, you know. They're not treating, they're not responding to you as an individual. They're treating responding to you in terms of their idea of what autism is so again it starts instead of liberating you it's, it starts to become aggressive uh, and, you, and some, it's somebody else is framing 
you know, your mind and things like that, which which is what me and him wouldn't would would not would not like at all. Would not like at all. So 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 he he would actively try to avoid telling others that he was autistic in fear yeah, of the, the yeah. negative labels associated with that. Definitely. Mm. Definitely. Yeah. He was not that open at all to talking about that. Not no. that open. He was I suppose a, hmm. he was aware of look, look let's let's be straight, right? The label autism, when we're going back to the 80s here, that was a stigma. I was just about you to say the same thing. Autism. Yeah, I was I'm about to say the same thing. It. Yeah, there um, must have been, I mean, it's still stigmatised and, and oh, problematic today. So. But I mean, back in the 70, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, you know, I can't imagine the stigma must have been absolutely catastrophic, really. <laughs> I mean, James, you've you've experienced a bit of that, haven't you? Having, having done education in the 80s and... and yeah and i didn't i didn't have any idea what autism was <laughs> either but yeah just the label all the labels like lazy you're lazy at that kind of after a while being being told that you you might you know i started to believe it so uh, i like didn't go to uni until much later on in my life because of that so yeah i, I can well understand that yeah so that's me, my brother, and yourself, James. All, all none of us accessed university until we were later in life. So it affected all of us in that way. And I, I think that's about the label. I think that's about, you know, having confidence sort of taken away from you. You know, not having, not being validated for who we are and how we work. You know, because you know, go back to the chess. Whatever it, it depends how you test. If they're going to test you for whatever it is they're testing you, and let's say they're testing you for intelligence, and they it's like they choose the battleground. If I'd have mm. chosen me battleground, I played the teacher at chess and absolutely stuffed him out of sight. He couldn't beat me, no chance. But that didn't count. You know, a maths test was more, not math, because I do pretty good at maths, but, you know, the geography, something I wasn't interested at all in, would be taken into account to assess my capabilities. And I was never going to study geography later on in life. I wasn't interested in it at the time. No disrespect to geographers at all. It was just that I was interested in other things more. And it just showed you, like, and this would be something that Mark Arolambus would go on about all the time. This, this, was his, this was his lesson three, three times a week, just stuff like that. He must have had a bad experience. Mark Arolambus was probably autistic, probably had a, a similar experience to us, because he certainly had a lot of bias in his belly for knocking down orthodoxy and uh, orthodox ways of interacting with kids because he interacted with all of us differently. He never embarrassed or humiliated any kid in his class. Never. Never, never mentioned anything. If you turned up late, perhaps close the door. Or perhaps if you could just be quiet for a moment while I make this important point, and that would be about it. That would be it. It was very liberating. Now, if you don't mind me saying, like, you know, obviously back then, perhaps you might, people might think, you know, well, you know, schooling back then was much different and, and, and there were, you know, pro, you know, significant problems with, you know, the educational approach and philosophy and, and, and this, you know, this, this, this isn't anything that, you know, we don't already know, et cetera, et cetera. And things have changed. However, you've got an experience, Alan, haven't you, um, in your training in more recent times, 
which sort of is evidence that things haven't changed that much. <laughs> no, 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 no. Right. Okay, so the violence and the humiliation, that overt violence and humiliation that was there uh, that produced real knee-knocking fear, that, that's, I don't know, perhaps not as intense now, but I mean, um, the idea that things are getting better, I, I, I would contest that. There was more scope to be a different type of, I feel, without getting one of these negative labels attached to you. You know, it's very, oh, the, the whole ADHD, blah, 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 autistic, blah, 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 blah. I mean, I just can't keep up with them. It never it never benefited me when I was working. So most of the time I was in school as a support assistant, and they give me the label of what the child had, in inverted commas, and I just wouldn't take any notice of it. I just try and create a relaxed environment and let the kid find their voice, you know, just try and engage with the kid. Always my first, my, the first thing I'd always want to do was to create a feeling of relaxation, you know, that you can almost, that you can see in a child, you can see when a child's at ease and be non-threatening and just be supportive of any sort of engagement that you're getting. So the labels didn't really, but I, I just, I just, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really, all right. I took barely no notice whatsoever of the labels. Whatever the teacher told me the kid's issue was, I kind of, I just kind of thought, I don't care what you think. <laughs> I just, I just, I just, it set me on onto this. It was a difficult experience interacting with professional staff who, as Stephen would say, would self-ascribe expertism to some, they would just, ascribe themselves as an ex describe themselves as an expert in something but Stephen would point out based on what 20 hours training or a couple of workshops all of a sudden this person thinks they're an expert on something you know and my experience with Stephen Stephen never divulged what his label was to me really and I just thought it's that approach it's help the child find their voice give them the space to find their voice and support it so you you took that philosophy into your PGC yeah, yeah. training. Yeah, yeah. I, I could work with a child and he would be doing subtraction and uh, multiplication and division. The teacher would be getting more and more frustrated that the child was doing it wrong. The child would get two out of 10. The teacher would tell the child off, go and work with Mr. Morrison. So I'd try and get the kid to smile i go hey you know just try and get them to relax just mess around with the resources play around with them wait a few minutes wait until the child felt at ease with me i was working on children feeling comfortable around me all the time that was me that was my number one goal when i went in not sharpen up my maths teaching not sharpen up my english teaching sharpen up how children relate to me let them come to me let them feel comfortable around me so i had that sort of persona anyway so i was non-threatening and we would do the same thing that the teacher had done with that child. I would do at that child's pace in their own time. And they would get 10 out of 10 instead of 1 out of 10. It just took any assessment. You could see that all the assessments they were making about all the kids were all arbitrary. They were all affected by the adult and the environment. All the time. Everything. Every single thing they ever did. Every child. This whole idea of fixed intelligence and grading intelligence was always a nonsense to me. I never, ever believed it, ever. I never bought into it. 
this child's clever, this child's thick, this child. I've never, ever, ever bought into any of that, ever. Even now, I, I struggle, I struggle. It's like the whole notion of intelligence. It's like if, if you drop Stephen Hawking into the Amazon, all of a sudden he's not going to appear very intelligent. You know what I mean? Or bam, whoever it is, whatever your great intellect is, if you radically change the environment, they suddenly become not very intelligent, you know, straight away. It's all, it's, mm. it's, you know, we human beings, it's not, we don't, we, we're not, you know, we're, we're, we're also more intelligent on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday, depending on how we slept and all these things. We all know this about, our, this is something we all know. We all see with our own eyes every day. Yet somehow schools have got a, a preoccupation with fixed grading of people. And, and when the teachers really, really buy into it, it's, that's what makes them a bit scary. That's when they start, you know, getting aggressive towards you because you're not doing what they think you should be doing, or you're not scoring what they think you should be scoring, or mm. you know, they're sort of slaves to the system that they're slaves uh, to the system. Yeah, to be fair to the teachers, they're getting it as well from above. Mm. It's not mm. they're not really free to. Um, they've got a lot of pressure. They're getting it from above. They're being graded. Their jobs at stake by how their pupils score as well. So it's a whole, it's not just happening, to, it's happening all the way through to everybody. So that's, sure, that's, sure. The, that's the system. It's because it's a, it's a wider social, uh, so, so socially constructed problem, isn't it? I mean, it, it's uh, a sort of uh, something that society, you know, deems as a useful way to categorise people into different boxes and, and, uh, perpetuate uh you know movement up and down classes and economies yeah. and so forth and so forth it's just a sort Stephen of would always say that uh he would trash exams and he would make he would talk he could talk for ages about exams he said but it's dis as dysfunctional as exams are that in inverted commas the right children get the right results so the kids the the, the, the governor's kids the head's kids they get A's, you know what I mean? It's like, it's their style that's rewarded the most. It's their way of learning that's rewarded the most. And people outside of that and outside of that type of family structure are always, are always running up, running uphill, really. It's always enough. It's always harder in a lot of ways. It's a bit of a fixed game, is it, you'd say? I'd say it's definitely made easier if you've got a certain type of identity and a certain mm. type of learning style. Yeah. What are your views as to how we should be, you know, basically educating children? And got a great one. So this is this is this is how I see it. And this was pre pre before the national curriculum. There was a lot more diversity in teaching style. There was a lot more diversity about what happened inside the classroom. So now, when we're under national curriculum, every thirteen-year-old every week is doing more or less the same lesson in each subject. You know. It's prescribed what they've got to do. So I always think of a lesson called leaves. Now, I don't know whether this is, I don't think it is imagination. I think this is real. Uh, I remember as a, as, a, uh, as a trainee teacher, we'd do something. With, so it's with primary school kids, we'd do something about leaves. They'd, uh, there'd be a box of leaves at the front of the class that the teachers collect. They'd have a look at the leaves. They'd have a, a, a given a piece of A4 with like five questions about leaves, write things down about leaves. And leaves are green, leaves are flat, leaves are, you know, five, five answers, tick, and then draw a picture of a leaf, tick, top marks, 
for that. So this is how I remember leaves when I was at primary school with a good teacher. So we sat, sat by the window and there was mature trees right outside the window. So one day we'd go outside and we'd start looking at leaves, picking leaves up. The leaves are falling, it's autumn. We come back into class with bundles and bundles of leaves, all the resources out. Kids can do what they want. They can go and paint leaves. They can make collages with leaves. Some kids have noticed that leaves are affected by the wind. And it ends up with kids making paper aeroplanes, kids making boats, things like that, all like that. And the idea that leaves are green and things like that, that's a nonsense because it's autumn. Leaves aren't green. You know, so I, when, it, when, I, when, I was in, when I was in the primary school as a support teacher, uh, when a student got got a correct mark for saying that leaves are green, it's it's twitching. I'm already starting to twitch. Like, no, no, no. This is not the way to think. This is not. That, that's just a narrowing of thinking. And there were opportunities for good teachers to broaden out a basic, basic subject like leaves to where you end up flying kites and studying bolts and studying. You know, it just was like the teacher could the teacher wasn't restricted into where they could go with a lesson so the teacher could pick upon what was interested in the lesson and what interesting things kids were doing and could go with that more there was more freedom for imagination there was more freedom for breadth of thinking in my opinion and i i think the national curriculum is a huge hindrance to those of us who think differently who are neurodiverse. I definitely think that. I don't know what you guys think. I mean, James, I don't know what we'd say, but I'm sure you'd probably agree with me that we'd agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to say about promoting uh, critical thought, you know, expression of diversity, and just, you know, trying to sort of push different ways of thinking and valuing different ways of thinking rather than trying That's to push everybody's thinking into particular boxes that suits suits others yeah but the, again the schools are getting judged on what you know it's like oh, yeah yeah there's pressure these outside pressures that force that restrictive lesson that dimming of imagination lesson that not rewarding yeah i, re I just remember that under the old curriculum that teacher a good teacher would take things in interesting directions and it would be more spontaneous it, they hadn't decided this before the lesson started they just went with what was interesting in the lesson and that allowed people who were thinking differently to get their their time in the spotlight to get their reward to get their acknowledgement to get their validation yeah we could well, it was a rural school we'd have people who bring in people would bring in a rabbit's they'd have a lucky rabbit's foot in the pocket you know and they'd end up talking about how they catch rabbits and what rabbits do to crops and things like that you know it just start so so the kid that's quiet the kid that doesn't say anything has got a rabbit's foot in his pocket and yet we can have a lesson that's it's, I know it's a bit macabre rabbit's foot it's not for everyone this but i mean just as an example off the top of my head how that child can talk about his day how he works with his dad in the fields why rabbits are a problem for them what he does what they do to stop him you find out he's got a shotgun he's got a, 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 you could get a small bore shotgun and uh, you know he tells you about how he does it so you find out that he's got a lot of skill and he's given a lot of responsibility in a different environment that he can exercise really really well 
and then you find out that he can drive a tractor, he can do this, he can do that. So this kid who would be ignored under a modern national curriculum, you know, suddenly he's telling the rest of the 11-year-olds that he can actually drive and that he can do this, he can do that, and he knows about what crops grow and how to, how to create a better yield of crop and, and what it is about soil that makes crops grow better and what it is about irrigation that makes crops grow better. And that sort of started from what's that in your pocket, Johnny, you know? It just can grow like that. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't happen at all today, but that was like the basis of so many lessons at primary school. That's how I remember primary school and the structure of them. We'd get maths court textbooks out, and that'd be about it. Everything else was a bit more free-flowing. So do you think your way of thinking about these things sort of went against you during training, you know, because you... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So the most basic, every single lesson had to be planned and the plan had to be submitted. And this was part of the paperwork that's associated with the national curriculum. So a lesson starts with, by the end of this lesson, this child will be able, the children will be able to, and then you put it... and. I, to this day, I can't do it. I can't even, I struggle to even think about it. I can't, I don't. I mean, teacher friends, they kind of giggle at me. Not, not, they're not mocking me, but they just, they just find it amusing that I can't, I can't get my head around this. And it's like, how do I know? I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. And that, that whole idea that we're going to do a lesson and we're going to know what's happened. By, we already know what's going to happen at the end of it by, by the time we started it. That's just straight away, it's like, oh, no, no, this is against all my way of thinking. Yeah, yeah. I think, I, I think, yeah. I think having t- spoken to you now and listened to you, I, I think it's it's now clearer to me, uh, you know, as to what, what perhaps was stopping you from, from you know, following through those plans in the way that they I wanted. Don't, it I wasn't... don't know, so if you could tell me, Chris. Well, I think, I, I mean, the sense that I get is that it, it isn't that, obviously, obviously you're an incredibly intelligent guy, so it isn't that you don't, wouldn't know how to, figure it out and do it but rather that your sort of moral conscience perhaps in an unconscious way is is sort of pulling you away from that approach I think I think it's probably more to do with that sort of unconscious sort of approach or way of thinking towards you know telling yourself not to do it you know it's I think it's just you essentially being honest with yourself that this isn't something that's morally right and, and we shouldn't be sort of encouraging it. I think that's probably what it is you know, from listening to you it's more of a sense of internal honesty you know being you know coming into play and and uh that's yeah. interesting what you just said somebody else uh said that to me today in a completely different context but they they talked about something about my moral compass stopping me from getting engaged in, in something else yeah 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 this, that's, that's been said to me today that, See, that's, that's quite that's quite that's quite a, that's quite a, a there strong is a, there is a repulsion element to it. You know, there is something emotional pulling me away from it. And there is something, mm. you know, my face screws up when I think about it, definitely. Uh, and it does feel like it's a strong imposition on others. And it also, imagine if, if that goal, that by the end of the lesson, the children are going to do this. Imagine if they're not doing it. How does that make me react? And how does that make me react if I'm being observed or if my paperwork's being graded? It is going to encourage me to get in inverted. It's going to it's going to make me more aggressive. 
I mean, you always have to think about, you know, your own childhood experiences with yourself and your brother and how you basically traumatized the two of you from that kind of approach, you know? And so this is a very emotive issue that, you know, reared its head in a sort of seemingly innocuous situation, but something in that in fact represented something morally very, very important to you. Um, I think that's probably what it is. But I mean, this this sort of, you know, this sort of story and in particular this concept of sort of honesty, deep, deep honesty to oneself, you know, coming through and, and in some way or another pulling you back, I think is something that's true for a lot of autistic people. You know, it, you know, the, a lot of autistic people have got such a drive of honesty. You know, that's something that I come across I quite, a, quite often. I did a project with some German academics. I think they were from, I think they were, uh, it's not Brighton University, it's not called Brighton University, is it? It's, uh, Sussex Uni or the one, the one that's around Sussex. Brighton. Sussex, yeah, Sussex, I think it's Sussex, yeah. Right, I think some German academics did some did some work about this, and I just got involved on a forum talking about honesty, and they were talking about in interviews with autistic people self incriminate so much, so often. One because of that, and two because if the environment's uncomfortable, they want to get out of it as quick as possible. So there's two things driving, it, and they they were. It turned out they presented at Strasbourg in front of the. Uh, for a United, it was a United Nations or European Union sort of conference on this. And that's all they told me. And we were discussing it. And I remember going through customs in uh, Australia. And we had hypodermic needles in our bags. They were packed securely in appropriate containers. And we were pulled at customs for having hypodermic needles and we we're all taken to separate rooms. Me and well, there's me and my brother and one other guy. So we're all took to different rooms and subject to really aggressive interrogation by Australian customs. And it was like, I'm gonna swear, but this is what the language they were using. They were like, You're a fucking druggie, aren't you? You're what are you doing with an hypodermic needle on you? And they were for blood transfusion. In case we had in case we needed a tooth extracted, we were going to India. And we were advised that if we needed a blood transfusion or tooth extractions or something like that, that we should have our own hygienic uh, hypodermic with us. And they were all encased. They were all boxed up as they should be, as they were bought, unopened. And we were subject to this heavy in in interrogation. And he kept saying, I can tell you're a student. I can tell. I can tell you do. I can tell you do drugs. I can tell you do drugs. And I was like, no, I don't. No, I don't. No, I don't. And he just kept pushing it. And he ended up saying, look, mate, everyone I know has been to Amsterdam. Everyone I know has had a puff on the job. Everybody I know has. Right, he's like, I've got you. And he was just going through everything then. The search got twice as big, twice as intense. And that was me not playing the diplomatic game, you know, just, just, just I had this fool in front of me talking like that to me. And I was like, get real, real wake up, mate. What planet do you think we live on? Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry no, about no. that. Yeah. No, 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 no. I think it reflects what, what you're saying. I'm doing it again there, a bit too self-confessional, but yeah, it was like that. It was like that. You... I think I think that honesty thing, yeah, it, it really I really find it hard to be devious. And I remember <laughs> I saw that, I saw this I saw on one on one autistic site. I did I saw this uh it was a brilliant one. It was like 
uh, this guy had come across these labels, autistic person is, and it was this, that, and the other. They are slow at processing. They are literal. They are, and they were all all right, all right, okay. I could see, I could see the point. I could see that point. I could see that point. But he said, "This is what neurotypical people are like." From my point of view, manipulative, devious, dishonest, and I was like, "Oh, go for it, mate. Go for it. Yeah, all the things that I would find really difficult to be." Well, that, yeah. that, and that comes through in your story about the Australian uh, customs people who are being very devious and manipulative. Well, what do you think, James, in terms of the whole honesty and, and autism relationship? As I said, uh, when, I, when I was um, unaware of what autism was, I just thought it came naturally as, as part of my personality and family and, and friends and stuff would say, oh yeah, that's just like, I've always been like a, a, a kind person or something like that, you know, and that's part of that. I think I was shielded a lot by my family and they thought they were being protective because of the stigma that was around, you know. So whenever I would try and bring up, when I'd try and think back to my school days and say, why did I struggle then? Why was I behind in school then? Or whatever they'd say oh no you're remembering it wrong no don't be silly you know or it happened to everybody or whatever but it was always there was always that kind of protective thing from my family but definitely um the honesty thing is a part of me as well i think how do Either... you feel James, if someone accuses you of lying or being deceptive because I really I, struggle with that. I really, really, I really get I, upset about that. I struggle, and I'll, if I get upset or whatever, but um, this is, I tend to kind of keep it in, and uh, I think I've, and there's part of me that even struggles about, you know, like I'll, I'll shut down and I won't even talk about stuff. So that's just paired that there's a thing called selective mutism, something like that, and that yeah. kind of, that's kind of a a box that I tick about myself that yeah. that to try and because it's a stressful thing, I would yeah. try and avoid it by shutting down and or yeah. or just even even so, agree yeah even agree with whoever's if someone's attacking me verbally or whatever yeah, yeah agree with them to get get rid of them yeah get yeah. out of the situation the quickest yeah. way you're right so yeah that that was kind of I, that kind of thing like a defence. Yeah. I, I think I think I think I've had that experience myself, and I think I fight against that, and I, I kind of force myself to come out of that that, that uh, of being mute, and then and then I get the you're being aggressive, I get that, but really I'm I'm kind of defending me. I feel like I'm defending my integrity. You know, it's yeah. like it's quite something to tell someone that they're being dishonest or they're being deceptive, or they're deliberately lying to you. Uh, Stephen, my brother, suffered from that as well. Suffered, <sighs> yeah, suffered because it's not true. He wasn't being deceptive, and he wasn't lying, and he would sit there sometimes and not say, not say anything. And I've done it as well. I don't like it. I send, I tend to. It's not a good feeling. That's that starts. I see this. I see this like externalizing. And uh, internalising negativity is something that I've had to do and I don't want to do and I fight against. And I believe it's not it's not healthy and we shouldn't have to do it. 
sorry, I'm going on one now. Must be getting uh, emotional, this. Must be getting emotional. Yeah, yeah. But... I think it's an important uh, thing, and it comes I up a lot in society. So many. Yeah. I, so, right. It's okay. So, when I was describing that work as a support assistant, if I'm working with someone who's neurodiverse, and they and I'm seeing them do that, I I don't like it. I don't like it. And the teacher's being aggressive and it's kicking it in more and more and more. So when I'm saying I'm waiting for the kid to relax, I'm waiting for that that internalizing process to stop for the child to relax and think, right, it's okay, I don't have to be internal, I can be external, I can express, and Mr. Morrison's not going anywhere, give me an odd time, it's gonna be nice and peaceful. He likes me anyway, because every time he sees me on the playground, he gives me a thumbs up or, you know, he's always smiling at me. And this is the approach to education that I obviously clearly favour much more, much more, more kindness, more empathy, less fake grading of kids. Oh, it's, I, I do get emotional about all this sort of stuff. Of course, yeah. It is, I think, I think um, uh, I get the, I get the sense that, What's happened with you, Alan, is that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, um, that you've unfortunately not had many people in your life, you know, defend you and validate you and protect you. And when, and when the odd person has popped up and, and, uh, and done so like Mike and the, uh, the boss at the concert company, you know, it's yeah. really sort of stuck out as, something extremely powerful because you know it's unusual and, and something you needed um and so you know i think it's reasonable given your your you know your life experiences and you know the fact that you probably protected your brother quite a lot you know you were the older brother and so you protected him and helped him and, and tried to protect him i think it's reasonable given all of that um, and plus the fact that you didn't have many people protect you. So you had to do a lot of your own self protection and you were inspired by those people that, that did sort of protect you and validate you. Chris, when... I, I can't believe I've only known you for a few days. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to say that when, when you do, you know, appear to get aggressive or assertive, that it, it all makes sense. Do you know what I mean? That it, it, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's you, you know, um, you know, self-defending because that's m most of what you know, you know, and, and, and it's not fair for others to judge you because they haven't lived your life. You know what I mean? They don't know the crap that you've been through yeah. and, um, and, and everything with your, your brother and, and, and whatnot. Um, and I think one thing I'll add to that in terms of the, my sort of, view of it all is that you didn't just have you know a couple of people who because you you had a couple of people in your life that really stood up for you and validated you and they were very powerful and, and really inspired you but it sounds to me like they weren't just any old average person but spectacularly inspiring do you know what I mean like both, that, of them, both of them are yeah. both of them at the top of the game yeah both of them are yeah, I was mean, really I, lucky yeah I mean Michael O'Hara Lambus I mean I I can imagine him, I mean, you've already described it, but I can imagine him being, you know, perhaps one of the best people possibly to inspire and protect and validate. And you say so you had that. So you, you've, had, you've been sort of exposed to very extreme circumstances of very little protection and validation. But when you got it, it was extremely fantastic. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> definitely, yeah. 
wow, that's great to hear that. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, I think I think you're still on. I think that's I think that's I think that's very uh, I think that's true. Yeah. I'm gonna what I'm gonna take away from your conversation, Alan, is that you. I mean, one of the main things I'm gonna take away is is just again, just how crucially important compassion and kindness and validation and inspiration is and and actually how how easy it is for people I've to give it i've never seen it not work chris i've never yeah. seen it not work i've never yeah. seen it not work i really haven't all this idea that if you are kind to children they will sort of take the piss and 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 just just misbehave that is not what i see i've not seen that okay children will gravitate to people who they feel safe and who validate them and who want to engage positively with them. That's, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I mean, you're, you're, you're a father. I mean, I mean, parents are going to know this more. That's just my feelings. Yeah, fully agree. And and a lot of people might be thinking, might be listening to this and, and think, you know, well, of course we know that that's obvious. But the reality is, and I think it reflects, it's reflected in your stories that people, so many people aren't um, employing those values for whatever reason. And it's, it's causing a lot of problems. Oh, well, Stephen looked at a lot of studies about this. Uh, So if you asked a teacher, can you meet the needs of all the children in your class? Very few are going to say no. (laughs) Very few are going to say no, because then your job's at risk if you say that. But studies show that to be able to do that with 30 kids is near impossible. So when I, when I work as a football coach and I work for, uh, as I, I did some work with the Premier League team that were, very well, that were very well resourced, they don't even work anywhere near those models. So if we're working with 24 kids, they turn up with four qualified coaches, two voluntary assistants, and it's a crime prevention scheme. So there's a policeman in a tracksuit there. So the numbers are off. The, the numbers, it's a totally different set of ratios you're working with. Yeah, and, oh, yeah. there's a lot of t- taking for granted assumptions about what the teacher can do and what, what a teacher's capable of. Now, uh, as much as I might sound critical about teachers, I've described a couple of people in my life uh, who have made a huge difference. So there are brilliant teachers out there doing brilliant work. But to pretend that all teachers were doing great stuff with all 30 kids in a class is fanciful. The big numbers, the big numbers that, kid, that teachers are dealing with, to be fair to them, and they're under a lot of external pressure. All this grading, Stephen would also mention a lot about the worst thing a teacher can be seen to be doing is losing control. So... What's indicative of losing control? A noisy classroom. Now, noisy, you've got 30 kids. If they're all talking to each other just fairly quietly, that still generates quite a lot of noise. So it tends to be like, everyone be quiet, this person's everyone. It's, it's not, I don't so, know. So it's like the, the teacher's the king and everyone else is, you know, I don't know. We can learn amongst ourselves. There's lots of different ways of learning. So it's not just, obviously it's not just the individuals and their own values and characteristics in terms of teachers, but the structural issues themselves in terms structure, of yeah, yeah, curriculum yeah. and uh, set up, set yes. up. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yes. Big, yes. big problems, yeah. Yes. Fascinating. Yeah. And fully, fully agree. Fully agree. A lot of problems. James, is there anything that like to cover that we haven't? I just find it fascinating thinking about what you've been talking about the sort of devaluing of 
of these things like compassion and kindness that maybe that generation of, of children is now grown up and out there in society because we've recently set up uh, this charity which which is part of what the podcast is is part of our charity stuff uh, and this sort of plays into that sort of wider the societal views on kindness because the, the sort of things that we we did research into what we should be doing as a charity and what we should expect you know that hasn't quite been borne out by the experience that we've had so we haven't sort of found people taking advantage of us and things like that and people have when we have reached out to people and and tried to and, and have helped them we found a tremendous uh, sort of disbelief you know and a kind of outpouring they want to give back to us because it's such a rare thing now or, you know a, a simple kind act it, it, it we're not we're not sort of giving away huge amounts or anything like that but just a simple kind word can mean so much to somebody these days maybe we can think about that it a lot of it starts in the classroom and maybe they need to look at that stuff now <laughs> and how it affects people when they grow up you know oh yes automatically the association with neurodiversity is a it's autom- i just find it automatically is a, is a, is a diminishment whereas if i think about those two characters that i found so validating the difference is what they're looking for and the difference is what they value the most. And if you look at studies of diversity, I, I think about nature and things like that. So if you have a field and it's just corn and it's corn and it's corn, after three or four years, you can't even grow any corn on it anymore. The soil doesn't like it, you know? And if you think about, someone said to me, uh, 90% of all life is found between the tropics. So life flourishes most where life's diverse. And, uh, Diversity itself brings about rewards and that diversity is a learning opportunity and that diversity. So there's just learning going on in the background through a valuing of diversity itself and trying to produce a monoculture. Just, I mean, so the national curriculum is trying to produce a monoculture. In my, If you go with this nature analogy mm. that I've got mm. and there's more self-harm going on. This is why I said things aren't getting better, things are getting worse, because there's more self-harm going on, there's more ill health going on, there's more childhood depression going on, there's more people on antipsychotic medication, and it's just there's more people being medicated full stop. So the sort of broad data of humans as, as like part of nature, it's it's... The more we try and narrow narrow it down and sort of fix the diversity, the more unhealthy the outcomes are. And I'm talking to a friend now, and she's got problems. You know, I just I'm just always I'm trying to encourage you to accept herself. You know, imagine going around thinking what's different about you is bad, and what's different about you is what's holding you back, and what's different about you is a problem. When we all want to meet that person that's different. We all want to, uh, you know, we all celebrate the neighbour with the personality that, the, you know, oh, you know, you know, you know, you know what I'm trying to say, guys. I'm sure it's mm. just, 
diversity is, is divert lip service is played to this, but you'll see it on pulses in skills that you know diversity is a strength, but diversity is a strength. And if we don't have diversity in teaching, then we're going to get misunderstood more and more and more. You know, we've all I've talked about it and you've talked about it, Chris, that, that feeling of going into your shell or feeling diminished because we're not being accepted for who we are. And do we want kids to feel like that? I don't I don't want them to. We want people to be respectful. We want people a healthy child wants to learn. A healthy child is curious. A healthy child has good attitudes. And I want—I don't want an academic agenda for young kids. I want a health agenda for young kids. That's what I want. And the academic agenda that we've got is producing record levels of illiteracy, poor results at math, all the things they think that are most important which they're putting at the top of the national curriculum, literacy, maths, and stuff like that. We're not producing good results. We're, we're second bottom in the league of uh, all industrialised countries. We're second bottom. The UNICEF report stated that uh, we've got the second most unhappy children in the industrialised world. And only America Americans produce more unhappy kids than us. Terrible. I was, I was going to point that out, actually, that, you know, much of this is linked with mental, in terms of the educational, academic mental, outcomes. Mental, it's I'm not, yeah, I've not even started it. I'm not even yeah. an expert on this. It's just like, well, yeah. and Chris, a, you're on this. You're all over this. There was a big, there was quite a big study done looking at mental health among children during lockdown. And they found that it actually significantly improved. Oh, Chris, right, honestly, right, I could go out my window and right, right outside, I'm on a council estate, right outside my window is a great big village green. Every single day during lockdown, I looked out of that and all the kids, boys and girls, black and white, they're all playing together every single day. I have not seen one fight, not one. Now, when I was worked in schools on a restricted playground, there's conflict every day. And another thing, I've got to say this, Big Brother, remember the TV programme? So that's produced by a company called Endemol. And they realised if you constrict the environment, create competition, you get conflict. And it's like, it's not even, it's that obvious. That I mean, that, but you broaden the environment. So lockdown, the kids don't have to go to school. They all play on the green. No fighting or anything. They're all, they are learning. They have learned so many soft skills, those kids, during, during lockdown. They've learned life skills, loads of them. They've enjoyed, they're having a healthy childhood experience playing together. The little one, that Aaron's crying, one of the girls will say, and they'll all go over and they all come for Aaron and they bring him back to play into the games with all the other kids. And it's like, you watch it and it's like, it's almost like they don't need adult supervision. They can, they can, they can, do, it on, they can do it by themselves. Mm -hmm. And if you put an adult there, they'd just ruin it, you know? They'd start saying, you go over there, you do this, you do that. Obviously, I want safety for kids and I want some sort of boundaries. But I mean, I think we fixate about how much adults should get involved and how much how much value adults can bring to it. I'm running out of words now. I'm getting a bit tired. Um, well, they're still very wise words, nonetheless. Uh, I totally, totally agree. Um, and I'm sure anyone listening to this is going to have lots to think about. And uh, hopefully 
some learning for all of us. It's been really fantastic talking with you, Ellen. Thank you so, so much um, for your time and your insight and your experiences and your wisdom. Wow. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> I'll take that. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been great talking to you and you, James. It's been great. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. Loved it. Loved it. Cheers. Cheers, guys. I'm a bit... Uh, I think we, I think my heart rate's going to start slowing down a bit now. It's quite it's quite something getting the opportunity to speak and uh, and be valued uh, like that. So really appreciate it, fellas. Thanks very much indeed, and and good luck with the charity. Hope it all goes well, and more power to your elbows. Thank you so Thanks much, so mate. Thank you. Right. 